Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. So now you've heard what happened at the trial, and there were so many aspects of the trial and testimony that literally blew me away, and I'm honestly still reeling from some of them. I know some of you are too. For those of you who haven't already found them, I put up quote cards about each episode on social media, so on Twitter at The Crime Analyst and IG at Crime Analyst, of some of the most poignant and or shocking aspects about the case, so be sure to check them out and let me know what you think. So switching gears, I now want to share with you a special interview with journalist Sharon Boyle, who lived in Yorkshire at the time PS was attacking and killing women. Sharon also covered this case extensively, interviewing many of the victims and police officers involved, as well as John Sutcliffe, P.S.'s father. And two last things about this episode, an apology in advance. I spoke with Sharon some time ago before I made the decision to use P.S.'s initials across the series, and so his name is mentioned in this interview. To bleep them out would be distracting, as he is mentioned many times. And lastly, a heads up, you will hear Queen Bee, my savage little beast, represent a few times. She had a lot to say about this episode, a day in the life of a podcaster working from home, but I think you will really enjoy this episode. And so without further ado, here's my interview with Sharon Boyle. Hi, Sharon. It's great speaking with you. Can you introduce yourself? I'm Sharon Boyle. I am a journalist of over 30 years experience. I'm based in Yorkshire. I write uh, for the national newspapers, magazines, primarily the newspapers, and I specialise in crime and health. Excellent. Thank you. And let's start off with what was your connection to the case, the murders? And I'm talking specifically about the murders and the attacks in the north of England. Um, When he started attacking, I was a a pupil at uh, a girls' school. His reign of crime went right through my most of my university years. And in fact, I was home from university when he was arrested. Um, he was obviously jailed then in 1982. I became a journalist in the 80s. And his stories never left our horizon as journalists. There's always something to report, or whether it's about him, the victims, new investigations. So obviously as a journalist working on his patch where he struck, I was going to cover the stories and over the years I've covered every aspect of the case. And so let's go back, before we talk about your the reporting of every aspect of the case, because you did some incredible interviews I'd love you to share, but paint the picture. You were growing up in Yorkshire at the time. Paint the picture of what it was like growing up, your teenage years, your kind of formative years, what it was like at that time for, for women and girls in particular. I think in the uh, early attacks, because he was attacking women who worked on the streets selling sex and sexual services. The police almost downplayed it um, and didn't give it the gravitas it would warrant now. With the murder of the teenage girl, Jane MacDonald, that changed the tenor of the police approach. The media also started addressing it with, I suppose, more seriousness and calling him a serial killer. And then as I 
became, let's say, from 18 to 21, that's when Sutcliffe upped the ante, really, and was killing randomly in its sprees and, you know, it'd attack. It'd go for months and do nothing, and then it might attack two quite close by time-wise. During my university years, I worked at my uncle's pub as a barmaid in West Yorkshire, and that's actually where the police would drink on a night. So we were very aware of the case, and like everyone, when the fake I'm Jack tapes came out, you know, my mum worked with me as well behind the bar, and she was convinced one of the drinkers was the I'm Jack guy. And we were all on alert. We all knew, most families knew somebody who'd been wrongly and falsely arrested. Um, we were, so the barmaids, for example, in, in my uncle's pub, everyone went home in pairs, they were taxied home, they were watched going in the house. It was a really frightening time. And, and the night he was arrested, there was almost a euphoria to the to the area. And so it's fair to say, given that the police were originally saying it was sex workers being attacked, the other women didn't feel that they were not safe being out on the streets, but the Jane McDonald murder changed everything. And therefore you all felt that, that you were at risk and, and changed your behaviour and were cautious and fearful. Is that fair to say? I think it's totally fair to say because there was a the attitude that the early victims were almost asking for it, putting themselves out there on the streets at night. The fact that they were vulnerable women or women down on the look, money-wise, family set-up-wise, and they were, they were stood on those cold streets of West Yorkshire in the dark in winter nights, purely for money. To make ends meet. And what, were the, what was the view on the police and what the police were doing? You mentioned that some of the investigative team came and drank in the pub that you worked. What did the community and people generally think about the police and, and the job that they were doing? I don't think the public really engaged with them, to be honest, because I think sex workers then, women who were walking the streets, I don't particularly like the term sex workers, but women who were walking the streets and having been forced through their own situations to have to sell sexual services, that was so far akin from most women's lives that it was irrelevant. But And I think, you know, the emphasis was on the bad women, wasn't it? <laughs> not the bad men who used them and paid for them, who no no doubt whether they you know, could have been husbands, brothers, work colleagues. But the police, it was, the police just got on with it. The, I would say it really only changed when Jane MacDonald was murdered. The police announced that he was killing innocent victims and no woman was safe. And that really was frightening to hear. Yeah, and they, I, the fact that women were having to walk the streets anyway to make ends meet, it, it's interesting, isn't it, how society's views and the police's views at the time, well, it's the women that are the problem. And I think the police actually said that they would arrest more women for being out. And that seemed to be a very odd focus rather than ensuring that they were focused on finding him, whoever he was, and that's where really all their energy should be focused upon. I think that's only changed in the last maybe even 10 years. I mean, I wrote a book 25 years ago now, maybe, 
and I looked at the um, prostitution across the United Kingdom and I was shocked to learn that the Met Police actually were arresting and prosecuting children and criminalising children that now be seen as victims of sex trafficking. So changes have definitely been made. And, you know, when Sutcliffe died, I tweeted publicly, I hope no one calls his victims prostitutes because they were all somebody's mum, wife, sister, auntie. And, you know, I, what I say when I wrote my book, I said, nobody's on, stood on a street corner for fun and to enhance their career. Uh, it's just trite to think of the, you know, that Hollywood film, the Julia Roberts film. Um, it's pathetic. They're out on those street corners. He, tar- he knew the women he was targeting. Some of them had chaotic lives, chaotic family setups. They were stood in red light areas. They were easy targets to pick. And I think the initial thing almost, it was it was implied, it was never said by the police or certainly not to me by anyone that there were, well, that's their fault. There shouldn't have been there. Yeah, I think we've still got a long way to go, haven't we? The victim blame we still see in cases. And I, I still yeah. think we've got a very long way to go when people define victims by whether they're innocent, whether they're deserving and so on. And we see it with so many cases, including domestic violence. Even now, we focus on what she was Mm. doing rather than what he was doing and why we didn't try and stop him. I think we have made progress. I mean, the the child grooming, sexual exploitation cases that have happened, I think, I'm talking in the last three, four years only, it's changed and how it's reported as well as investigated. Um, And I think the public are aware now and there's more sympathy for these children. 20 odd years ago, these girls were just like the girls who were exploited in the last 20 years, if you like. They're from chaotic homes. uh, They might be in care. They've no family set up behind them to say, you need to be in at this time. Where are you? Where, where are you going? And so the women that Sutcliffe chose right through, um, he knew what he was doing all along, especially in the, the, the early years. Yeah, targeting those that were readily accessible, high-risk victims. And as we know at that time, that people didn't care so much about. And that's... Yeah. how he perfected his, his modus operandi. Well, let's talk a, a little bit about the facts, uh, or let's talk about the interview that you did with his father, John Sutcliffe. Tell, tell me about that. What was your impression of him, first of all? Um, I, I drove to, uh, to interview John Sutcliffe when I'd read that he was ill, quite ill, and I thought, well, I've never seen an interview with him for a long time. He's got a story to tell, and I would like to get it on record before he died because it came out he had um, emphysema, seriously ill. And I picked up a Daily Mirror on the way because um, Peter Sutcliffe had been attacked in prison, and his face filled the front page of the paper. So I read it, left it on my front seat, knocked on John Sutcliffe's bungalow door, and he 
he opened the door and I gasped because to me, staring back at me was Peter Sutcliffe. Um, both had the really dark brown, brooding eyes, jet black hair, dark skin. Um, yeah, it took my breath away. So I introduced myself. He knew, I'd already run to say, would he talk to me? And I was agreed when he said yes. So I went in and I spent the day with him. And he was in no rush to kick me out. I think he let me in because I was a young woman. And he was lonely, as he pointed out, even though he's in his 70s. Uh, he, his relationship with the latest woman had finished and he was looking for another girlfriend. So he said, would I like to see around his uh, bungalow? I wasn't particularly bothered, but I said, yes, okay. Uh, well, I got a feel for how to deal with him and everything. Um, kitchen. Then he went into his bedroom and... Uh, I think the walls were painted green and he walked around his double bed and he said, look at this. And I stood in the doorway. I never went further than that. And um, he said, look at this. And it was a picture of himself, head and shoulders, coloured photograph. And he was wearing, I can see it now, white dinner jacket, white frilly uh, evening shirt and a dicky bow. I think it was red. And uh, it looked like an older version of Clark Gable. And he said, do you know who took that? I said, no. Um, he said, Terry O'Neill. Now, Terry O'Neill was a celebrity photographer uh, who was married to Faye Dunaway, well known for his celebrity photos. And I said, oh, right, right. I said, why did he take your photo? He said, I don't know. And I thought, well, he's taking it because you're a serial murderer's father. We went then back to the lounge and I sat on the settee. He sat opposite in an armchair. And uh, as I looked around, bear in mind, this is a man who was a father of six and presumably would have grandchildren. I think there were three photos um, in the lounge and more or less the role of him, not a single photo of his children or family. Wow, that's really instructive. So pictures of him ra rather than his family. And so... What did he say about, did you ask him about what had happened and, and what did he say and how did he describe what happened? He, um, well, he's well over six foot, stockily built, powerful man, um, imposing. Uh, he was known in the local town. He was apparently a superb singer, superb sportsman. He worked in a mill. Um, he was very much a man's place is where the man's place wants to be and the woman's at home. Um, so over the afternoon, we sat talking, and it was interesting. He, we talked about his early life, and he said, "Oh, he said, I said, oh, I understand your mother was called Ivy." He said, "Don't mention her; she was a bitch." I said, "Oh, right." I was quite taken aback by that. I said, "Why? Why do you talk about it like that?" The least said about her, the best. He said that she was a bitch. Um, so then he talked about um, his wife, Kathleen, and he said she was a diverted mother. What he didn't tell me, but I knew, was, was that he'd repeatedly thumped her at times, black eyes, humiliated her in front of the children. He had um, romanced and slept with many women in the town, including one of whom was a friend of hers. Um, Peter was the oldest, and... all. Three boys, three girls. The other two boys, Mick and Carl. 
taller, stockier build. He said Peter was the smallest. I think she'd, she'd lost a child before Peter. Um, I think that was a boy, but Peter, uh, small, smaller, not a stockly build, gentle voice. And John said he was a, a, a mummy's boy, always hanging onto her, her apron strings. Well, to the alpha male, John Sutcliffe, uh, that would be really the worst thing you could be for his son. And Peter was devoted to the mother, devoted. Um, and over the years, he said he was uh, a, a good son. He had no time for Sonia. He thought Sonia was a snob. Um, who looked down on them as a family. Um, but uh, uh, one of the Sutcliffe siblings told me that no woman was safe around John Sutcliffe in terms of him being a, a sexually aggressive and a grouper. And he even made a pass at Sonia's mother in, in the family home. And after he tried to kiss her, Sonia never uh, the mother. Maria Zerma never went to in the house again. That's really interesting. So no one, I mean, the womanizer yeah, side, no, when people say someone's a womanizer, I always yeah. see that as a red flag behavior because it shows that they disrespect women and that they don't seek intimacy. They have no respect for them. So I think that's very interesting. And they don't know boundaries, do they? They don't know boundaries, you know. I know it's a bit different from being a serial killer, but it's still a lack of boundaries, even at that level. Um, he said, um, he never said the word murder or killing or anything to do with violence. He said, um, I'll, and the other five children by this time, some of whom live close by, rarely bothered with him. And the reason was because of how he humiliated the mother in front of them. And, and also, I think he was a terror when he was in the house. He ruled it with uh, a fist of iron. Uh, the boys, you know, would get, uh, hit, um, and I think at one time he used a, a leather whip on one of the boys. Um, he kicked them. He left the family home and moved in with Kathleen, his wife's friend, across the back, and where they could all see the house and his laundry hanging out of the uh, along the washing line. And Peter and his two brothers took air rifles and tried to. Um, shoot his shirts off the uh, washing line. They said when he left, it was the happiest day. Oh, really? Of their lives. That The atmosphere in the house was fantastic. And then when Carl came back from, uh, I think, school or work, and the dad's bike was in the hallway and his heart sunk. And uh, he became master of the house again. Uh, they'd be watching things on TV. He'd come in and just turn over without asking them. Uh, when Carl made played a practical jerk on him one time or something, I think it kicked him and hit him. Um, I think within weeks, weeks, and I'm talking three, four weeks of Kathleen dying, he'd moved another woman into the house. How disrespectful is that? Total lack of respect. Um, so that's, and as Peter as the oldest would see that, and as he began working, I mean, John William Sutcliffe, the dad, abused the mother. He'd be arrested now for physical abuse, but there was also, they call it coercive abuse, and he kept her financially short. There was abuse on different levels. And um, 
when Peter began work, he'd, he'd often give his mom extra money because John Sutcliffe kept her short. So she was raising a family and she could have uh, two or three extra jobs yep. as well, you know, as raising a family. Coercive control. And at one point, well, the, the way he wanted it, so John Sutcliffe sent out the message, he can do what he likes, but Kathleen couldn't. And I think at one point when they were split up, she began a friendship with uh, a local police sergeant and John Suckley found out and he called all the children to a local hotel. I think Kathleen thought she was staying away or something, so she had an overnight bag. And um, he, they were all in this hotel room. I think it was in Bingley. And John Suckley pulled out Kathleen's nighting uh, uh, out of the bag and told the kids that she was having a relationship with another man. So he tried to belittle her in front of them. I also read somewhere he gave her two black eyes because of that relationship. He gave her two black eyes, yeah, yeah, yeah. He took her home and gave her two black eyes, yeah. So he really did reassert his authority and I would imagine that was a very terrifying environment to to grow up in for the children Mm -hmm. and for Kathleen. I think they were terrified of him, but I think when Carl, and in fact I do know this, Carl's told me this, when uh, he... After the mum died and he brought the other woman back, I think Carl turned on him and uh, I think there was an altercation. But as the years went on and Peter Sutcliffe left the council house, married school teacher Sonia, who enjoyed music, art, um, you know, aspiringly middle class, I suppose, bought the detached house in Bradford and Peter, Peter's parents would go around so they'd be proud of their eldest son who was making a go as a, a lorry driver but they didn't like Sonia she was late, if she was visiting them if they went to her house there was no heating on he said that they switched the heating on she switched it off there was very little food that, you know, they just didn't relate to her at all and um, uh, so they really didn't have a lot to do with her. But one of the things that stuck out for me in the day I spent with him is he said, um, our Pete's the best of the lot. I said, pardon? Our Pete's the best of the lot of my kids. I said, oh, right. I said, but he's a murderer. <laughs> he said, well, he rings me every other Tuesday. I said, oh, right. Okay. I said, what about the others? Well, I don't know where they are. He really had no idea much where they are or what they were doing. Um, and I thought there was no sort of internal examination from him about why it was like that. Do you know, you know, nothing about, well, I probably wasn't very good to the mom or, um, he was a brutal man, brutal, I would say. And then, um, he, but he was quite full of himself as well. He was, I'll say there was an arrogance to him. And he said, I think he said to you, P.S., he was a good and normal son, the best of sons. He's a lovable lad. I'm not ashamed of him as a person because he's a grand lad. You couldn't wish for a better son, which is quite that's incredible right, yeah. in the context of everything that's yeah. gone on. And I think you asked I him think, about yeah. his, you know, who he thought P.S. Took, took after, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. I said, who does he take after? I said, he obviously looks like you. I said, but who do you think he takes after? And he said, 
why does he have to take after anyone? And he never talked about his crimes. He talked about it, it, when, when, when it happened. And he said he's not ashamed of his son either. And I, I did think, I think I actually said to him, I said, well, I would be. It's quite a staggering thing for a parent to say, isn't it? Given it shows zero empathy mm-hmm. for all the families who have suffered and for the women that were killed. No, no empathy at no, all. None. No apology. You know, as a parent, you say, Look, I'm, I'm devastated. I, I'm so sorry. I don't know why it happened. Nothing. Amazing, really. And he also said, I've done nothing in my life to make P.S. do what he did. So even though yeah. you knew the history from the other siblings, and it's it's very clear, and of course P.S. is the sole person responsible, but of course the environment that someone grows up in is important to understand, and I call it a psychological autopsy. And he was his role model. That's who he looked yeah. up to, in inverted commas, as you do with your mother and your father, and that's how he treated women and how he behaved towards women. I suppose Peter Sutcliffe saw his mother as the Madonna, maybe Sonia, the um, homemaker, the loyal, faithful wife. But then he saw the father with, I suppose, what you could call, or they might call, the whores, the Madonna and whore syndrome. So he saw the best of women, if you like, and the worst. That there's nothing in between that, which of course we're all complex women and men. So just to see them in this rigid black and white, this rigid thinking. But it seemed that P.S. carried that through. I mean, there were other times where he referred to women as bitches. And of course, if he's got his father talking about his own mother in that way, I, I wonder what else he was saying about his mother other than she was a bitch and, and what really went on. Because it seems that John Sutcliffe didn't have too many good things to say about women from Sonia and Sonia's mum. Kathleen, it seems that he said she was a devoted mother, but of course we know that he abused her and even his own mother. So the way he treated significant women shows that he's a violent and controlling misogynist. And that was the background environment that P.S. grew up in. Yeah, absolutely, if you think. So the mother was a bitch. He treated his wife appallingly and Sonia uh, dismissed as a snob, um, cold, interfering, that uh, she, uh, Peter was hempegged. Well, that's just probably about the worst crime in John Sutcliffe's life, to be hempegged by a, uh, a woman. Yeah, I always think it's interesting, those terms, henpecked and nagging, because normally it's women asking men to step up to their responsibilities, that is... But is the word he used, not me. Yes, no, I understand that. I understand it's his terminology, but what I'm saying about it is when we hear men talking about women being uh, henpecking a, a partner or nagging, it's my view as a professional is that it's when women are asking men to step up to their responsibilities, i.e. if Sonia wasn't of the mind that she would have dinner on the table at a certain time, and her and P.S. could go down the pub drinking, which is what John did. In John's view, women are just there to facilitate and improve men's lives. They're not there for any other reason. They're there to have sex, to cook, to clean. And Sonia yeah. may well have had mm. the view that 
that's not what she was there to do. And therefore, John sees her as domineeringly quiet, a cut above the rest and henpecked P.S. And she was the boss. So she's immediately uh, a negative in his eyes because of his worldview of women, his misogyny. So he belittles her. And uh, yeah, it is say Peter was henpecked by her. And actually, one other member of the family also spoke about her like that. So it did filter down to the children. And actually, you say that as a professional, but I'd say as a personal thing, it is belittling women, isn't it? It's it's uh, keeping them in the place. John Sutcliffe liked women to know their place, whether the place was in the bedroom or the kitchen. Yes, and that was, as we remember that time, Sharon, it was the dominant view in society at that time. And it's really now that we push the boundaries and envelope around gender parity and equality and uh, women having equal rights, but we're still pushing for that. But I think when we go back in time, the culture and the context, John Sutcliffe wasn't the only one who had that view. And that's part of the, the challenge with an investigation like this, that I would say P.S. wasn't really too different from many other men at the time. He didn't seem to like women. But I, I think it's interesting that what was said about P.S. by John Sutcliffe, and I think this, well, this is a quote lifted from your interview. He certainly had some kind of madness in his mind, though I never saw any sign of it. And I think that's a very interesting point because of, obviously, as we know, P.S. later pleaded guilty, diminished responsibility and went down the line of the mental health card, as we call it. And that's what he said to Sonia, that he heard voices from God and that he was going to go down that route. But isn't it interesting that his father, even in the interview with you, said that he saw no signs of that illness and neither did anybody else and, and nor did the police, no. importantly, on interview. No, no, no. The misogyny as well, that attitude to women actually extended into the senior police. So that's where, where Peter Sutcliffe got lucky because John Sutcliffe's attitude was very similar, say, to Dick Holland's attitude, I think, who I also interviewed, who saw, again, women as either good and respectable or bad and dirty. And that really helped Peter Sutcliffe get away with it for as long as he did. I think that's a very interesting point, actually, Sharon, that you bring up. And we'll come back to the, the second part, which was about no sign of any form of schizophrenia. Oh, no. But I think that's important, yeah. what you said about Dick Holland, you having spent time with him. What were some of the things yeah. that, that he said? Because I agree with you, having been deep diving this case and reinvestigating it, the attitudes were pervasive at the time, um, not just that sex workers were not innocent victims and that they sort of deserved it, but this real thick entrenched misogyny, which really wasn't hidden at the time. It was quite overt. And so did Dick Holland say other things to you that made you... Yeah, he did. But I also think, you know, the media, I mean, they went whiter than white. You know, that sort of sexism and misogyny was also in newsrooms up and down the country, way into the 90s. So, you know, it was all round, wasn't it? But I, I, I went to interview Dick Holland by then he was retired. Uh, could be re 
really brutal and tell you. I mean, he was a, a big, obese, sturdy voiced, I'm trying to be polite, um, sort of pretty awful character, I would have said, really. Very much 70s de- detective, uh, Mr. Powerful, uh, but, you know, full of himself. Um, in his very spacious bungalow, um, bear in mind he was the deputy senior investigating officer in the case. No remorse from him either. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Uh, no, nothing like, well, yeah, I really did uh, balls up this investigation. Yeah, we didn't listen to our officers on the ground who were saying, this this killer's boot, right boot, is far more worn than the left, is potentially a lorry driver. We've got these marks. We've got two victims who survived who gave near-perfect descriptions of him down to the gap in his teeth how he spoke, and they were totally dismissed because Dick Holland, George Oldfield, knew better. So I spent the afternoon with Holland years after he retired. No reflection, really, just uh, that's how it was. And uh, he described one victim who survived, and I've never identified that person. Um, And very nice person she was. Um, And he described her in appalling terms appalling and I chose not to include it in the interview uh, in in the published piece out of respect for her and her family that attitude really plays in and we know that there were junior officers Andrew Lechu for one who wrote a report saying very clearly that PS needed to be looked at in much more detail and needed to be properly investigated and he was told if he continued down that line he'd be doing traffic because he didn't want to hear yeah any more dismissed dismissed but Sutcliffe was interviewed I think nine times now Peter Sutcliffe must have thought he was Superman, could get away with anything by that time. Um, interviewed nine times, and nine, was it nine times they walked away? And he was only really arrested by luck. Yeah, by South Yorkshire police, who uh, did a stop on a, on a car. Well, he was already stopped, but because of the plates and the light. I mean, it's really quite staggering. I, I believe it was actually 11 times that he was interviewed. And yes, he actually right. said at trial, right. it, it's amazing that I wasn't caught before and that he felt that he was invincible. And I think that that, well, there were lots of things going on as to why he wasn't. I think the senior officer's attitude, the, the fact that they went down the line of the the tapes, Wearside Jack, and eliminating people on handwriting and mm. voices, which is a huge no-no. And actually, they were told by New Scotland Yard not to do that, that they shouldn't be eliminating on the accents and handwriting. And actually, P.S., when Andrew Lepchu wrote his report, he was asked, does he have a Geordie accent? And was when he said no, he said, well, we're not interested. And if you, the next person who talks to me about that will be doing traffic for the rest of their career. And of course, That's you know, right. the fear yeah. culture yeah. in yeah. the police was such. I joined sort yeah. of at the tail end, but yeah. the, you couldn't be insubordinate to your senior officer, that fear culture, and you're being told that you do traffic. Well, that stopped Andrew Lechu from being the detective that he was. And his sense about PS was exactly right. 
Well, have you heard of the word Brusson? Brusson, I don't know if it's a Yorkshire word or whatever, but Dick Holland was Brusson. He was rough around the edges. He was rough spoken. He was, do as I say, and that's that. Um, one detective told me that uh, the officers were on the sixth floor of Milgarth Police Station in Leeds, and Dick Holland would be up there, suited and booted. And on, lunch, on the lunchtime, he'd go down to the gym in the basement to play squash, I think. And he just swapped his work shoes for some plimsolls, took off his tie and play, <laughs> played the, the sport in his work clothes. And then just put his work boots back on, jacket and back up to the um, to the uh, sixth floor. Again, you just suspect that women would have to know their place in Dick Collins world. Yeah, well, I think I, I also came across this, which is quite common that I saw when I worked major investigations, and it was the attitude, and numerous police officers said this, we will know him when we see him. And oh. that attitude has, has, be, has impeded so many investigations, and it's the arrogance that people think that, you know, a serial killer has two heads that you would know intuitively. And I think that yeah. also the moniker, which we're intentionally not using, because it's so distressing for the families, but the moniker that he was given also played into that, don't you think? That they, they kind of built up this mythology of this half beast, half human. Mythology, yeah. You know, that wasn't him, which is yeah. why when he was arrested, he was so yeah. unremarkable and so ordinary, politely and softly spoken, that they just couldn't believe. It didn't fit with this ridiculous mythical figure that had from this moniker had been conjured up in their minds and that seemed to really play in and impede this case and him being arrested. But Peter Sutcliffe played into that himself because when he gave lifts home to his brother's girlfriend and they'd all been talking about who this serial killer was and he said to one of the girls, don't worry love, he only kills prostitutes. But you see, the police yeah, they had two, at least two victims. Well, they had more, they had several, but Tracy Brown gave a near photo fit I, picture of Peter Sutcliffe. She walked half a mile with him, talking to him. Olive smells distinctively uh, and repeatedly said he had a soft Yorkshire voice. Even down to, I think he called her love, something like that. I think he commented on the weather. But the police just ignored and two live witnesses who were brilliant in their descriptions and they were just knocked back time and time again. They would take the I'm Jack take, take to Tracy and she'd say, I don't listen to it, it's not him. How must that have felt for those two women? Absolutely horrific. I mean, being disregarded and being dismissed when the fact was that he did engage many women beforehand, he would talk to them and it was that that put their guard down because he would approach and talk with them. He wasn't this monster that had been conjured up through this moniker. And there were many other girls who and women who were attacked. Now, Marilyn, where there was the photo fit as well. and The photo fits were amazing. They were so accurate. I mean, certainly Olive Smelt, Tracy Brown and... Marilyn mm. Moore, and it was Andrew Latu who, when he brought P.S. in, he was sat underneath the photo mm. fit of Marilyn that Marilyn Moore had produced, and he saw the gap in his teeth. All these key points that led him to believe that P.S. needed to be thoroughly investigated, and that just fell on deaf ears. Well, in fact, he was threatened, which, again, it goes against the whole ethos of being a detective, that you have to 
make these links. You have to follow your gut instinct about things and ask more questions. And so many more victims would have been saved. Had he have, and of course we know now, he came into the investigation, it wasn't just nine times, actually it was 11 times that I found. And it's just bloody sheer bloody-mindedness, I would say, on Oldfield's part, where he was wedded to this theory that those tapes and the letters were from the killer, when in fact there was no new information in any of those letters. Even what he said was new information no. wasn't. And I think that that was so problematic, you know, and again, I think, Sharon, that the moniker played in, that Oldfield felt that this was some sort of cat and mouse game and his arrogance and his ego led him down all the wrong paths of the the tapes and eliminating people on accent and handwriting. It's it's just unconscionable. Oldfield had his own demons as well. Um, and I think he did take it personally, you're right, I think. The, but there's almost an ego to that, isn't it? That it's me is after. Well, actually, it wasn't you, George Oldfield. Exactly. It was Peter Peter Suckler's own power and craze uh, journey that he was on. But uh, uh, I mean, it took its toll on Oldfield, and people said, you know, the junior detectives would take him his tray of coffee into his office at eleven o'clock, say, in the morning, and there'd be a jug of water, and that was to go with whiskey you'd have with it. Yeah, well, it sounds like he was spending the night in his office most nights and was working very long hours. And a lot of people did work very long hours. But I think that key point that it became about him, it became personal. And he thought that, Mm. you know, this killer was writing to him when all along he wasn't. And he was just taking the investigation down a path that New Scotland Yard had had warned him and the chief constable not to. And you can say hindsight's twenty twenty, but I, part of why I'm doing crime analyst is to really, really distill the key lessons because I still don't feel that they have been learned. And it's not just about the investigation, it's about the culture and the decisions and the way that we view victims. And my unit was set up, the sexual offences section at New Scotland Yard, to link stranger rape, murder and abduction cases to learn the lessons. But we know even with the Byford report, I mean, there were over 200 pages written about the failures and yet very little of that made it into the public domain because it was so shockingly appalling what had happened. Yeah. And I still feel we haven't learned those lessons. I still feel there's so much more. And again, it depends also on what cases are linked, doesn't it? And there's believed to be many more offences that PS committed um, even before Wilma McCann's case, I've actually identified seven near misses because we know that someone doesn't start with murder. They do in vivo no. tryouts. They no. do other things beforehand. And Keith Halliwell, I think, believed that there were looked at 60 murders and felt that 20 may have been committed by PS. But again, offenders don't murder, murder, murder. I've learned across my career, they do lots of other things in between. But it depends what cases you link. And he was a very prolific perpetrator. The notorious Wearside Jack tape, a time-wasting hoax and a lesson to detectives ever since. Police so overwhelmed, one officer now retired told me she's certain all of the victims were never identified. I'm certain there were other victims Absolutely positive. I myself interviewed one. 
But the Chief Constable, Mr Gregory, said that we had enough on our plate and it would not be recognised as an attack. And when Carl Sutcliffe talks about one day, just out of the blue, he dropped, I think, uh, I don't know if it was about, anyway, there's well over 10, 12 years, I think, age gap between the two. And Carl Sutcliffe is the youngest of the six, and he says Peter was like the father figure to him that their father wasn't, and Peter showed him how to repair motorbikes, and that's what they did lots of times. And then when Kathleen died and John Sutcliffe kicked him out at one point. He went to stay at Peter's, but Sonia didn't like it, so he, he didn't stay long. Um, but when he was younger, a child, he said, he can't remember why, but he knows that Peter dropped him out a bedroom window once. <laughs> why? You know, he, he just can't remember it. So there was a, some sort of street then. Then another time, I think, I think um, Carl had a, an air rifle and one of the neighbours reported him to the police and uh, while the police were on the way, Peter Sutcliffe, do they call it decommissioned it or uh, made it safe or look as if it was broken and the police came and they said, no, it's not all it's look, it's broken, it doesn't work. So he was already trying to outwit the police in the early days and you're right, you just don't go from that to murder, do you? I mean, I've looked at... um, the killing of Fred Craven, a, a bookie in the Sutcliffe's hometown, and the attack on taxi driver John Tomey. And um, I wrote to Sutcliffe in 2017 when I was working for ITV Yorkshire. And I actually wrote to him in Durham Prison. And I said, can you answer these questions? Did you do these crimes against these two men? Now, somehow... He smuggled a letter out. It was because he was blind by then because of the diabetes. He had a prison buddy called Steve, who I think is a, a serial rapist, and Steve wrote the letter for him. And uh, Sutcliffe methodically went through my three or four questions and said, um, uh, I'd like to say, and this has to be the criminal understatement of the 20th century, um, I know I've done some bad things. So that's how he describes uh, his crimes that he's being convicted of. I know I did some bad things, but I did not kill Mr. Craven or attack Mr. Tomey. But, and he said, I am being 100% honest. And I think, why would you believe him? Yes, a pathological liar who has changed his version of events at least four times from when he was arrested to the trial. So I think the control aspect for him is always going to weigh in the power and control. And he he wrote something interesting at the top of the letter to you, I, I recall, um, about doing your research more thoroughly, wasn't it? There was some kind of control that he put in at the top of the letter. Yeah, yeah. he did. He tried to uh, admonish me. But in fairness, we gave him a deadline. And it was, it, I was uh, doing the case with uh, a colleague there, Christine Talbot, and he, um, I'll just find the piece for yeah, you. Yeah, have you got the letter, actually, Sharon, that you can read out, please? Well, it, it, I uh, wrote the letter, but I signed, uh, Christine signed it because she was the presenter of the news programme, ITV Calendar. 
So it was, he replied back, um, 5th of June, 2017, 1900 hours from Peter Coonan. So he's now taken on his mother's maiden name as well, his ditch Sutcliffe, which I think is quite interesting as well. Firstly, may I just tell you, I'm now registered blind. So for your information, another inmate who I can only tell you is called Steve, who is a prison buddy slash carer. He's writing this on my behalf and under my instruction. Also, can I say I only received your letter at 6pm on Monday, the 5th of June 2017, which does not give me much time to get this reply back to you in time. But I can only try and hopefully you'll receive it by 7th of June, but doubtful due to all mail going through senses before going out. As for your questions before I go any further, I would like to say you need to do your research a little better. You stated I was recently questioned on 17 murders and attacks. The truth of this matter is I was questioned on 16 attacks and all were non-fatal, nothing about murders. And the police are satisfied I was not involved with any of the said attacks. And I was not questioned about Mr. Craven and Mr. Tomey. Your questions, number one, how well did I know Fred Craven and his family? I knew of Mr. Craven and his family as I used to walk past their house. I've never spoken to Mr. Craven on a personal level and I wouldn't even tell you where is, I couldn't even tell you where his betting shop is. I've spoken with his daughter on the odd occasion and that's as far as it goes. Number two, did I murder Mr. Craven? I can tell you with 100% honesty, I did not murder Mr. Craven and never have have I attacked a male? Number three, Mrs. Vidler is wanting, Mrs. Vidler is Fred's daughter, Fred Craven's daughter. Mrs. Vidler is wanting some form of closure before she dies about her father's killing. What is my message to her about this? This is his reply. I understand she would want closure and yes, I did some bad things, but I just want people to know I did not attack or murder any males. And with a whole life sentence, I'd have nothing to lose. And it would not be my interest to say I didn't do it, if I did, as I'm in jail till my dying day. So I'm telling you 100% it was nothing to do with me. Last question, number four. Former CID Chris Gregg states that he suspects I may have been behind Mr. Craven's murder and a number of other male and female victim murders. What is my reaction to this? And his reply. As I said, I was questioned about non-fatal attacks and disproved them all. And as it stands, you have not seen victim statements and more so description of alleged attacker, e.g. ginger hair and beard, age description, mid-40s to 50s. I was in my late 20s, early 30s. And as you say, he suspects my involvement, so I suggest he should reread statements victims make if available to him. I hope this is satisfactory to your needs and reaches you in time. Brackets. Peter will sign this best he can. Close brackets. Buddy Steve. Regards. And then Peter has signed yours sincerely. Peter W. Coonan. 
Interesting, he uses his mother's name, so he changed his name and that's what he wanted to be referred to. But also his important point for him that he wants to make is that he didn't attack men, as if men, that's important to him, that men have a higher status or standing to women. And that comes through very clearly in that letter to me. Maybe he was scared of men being slighter, Bill, but Carl, Carl his younger brother, said... Um, when he was married by then to Sonia in, in the early years, um, he would take Carl to the pub just after Carl became 18 and the official age he could drink. And they would go to um, sort of dodgy pubs, really. And he said he would just sit there. Carl said he, Peter would sit there and just ogle and make derisive comments about women. Look at her, look at the state of how she's dressed. Yeah, that doesn't surprise so, me at all, given the environment he grew up in and how what he really thinks about women. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, was it... Um, um, Carl says he also did do some bodybuilding, so built up his fitness. I think he was quite conscious that he was slight, slighter build than his brothers and father. And yet... Maybe emasculated. Yeah, I mean, he dressed uh, meticulously, his father said, didn't he? And I've seen that elsewhere, that he dressed meticulously. And quite a few of the victims said that he um, thought a lot of himself. You know, he seemed to know he was good-looking. yeah. He was good-looking and... Yeah, meticulous. And Carl said he would spend ages in the bathroom trimming his beard. Yeah, I think that's that's very interesting because people don't think about that side to him, but the ego was certainly there and how he thought of women. Those those little insights that Carl provided you with really are instructive. And I also read somewhere recently, I read that when he was a grave digger, that when female bodies came in, he would call them bitch and a female magistrate came in and he grabbed her by the face. This is obviously, she's already passed, but he grabbed her by the face and said, now, bitch, you're not going to be sending anyone to prison, are you, you bitch? And, and other people heard him say these things. And yet it looks like he was never challenged for that attitude. So there are all these little glimmers and insights about his attitude and the way that he viewed women. And that hatred seemed to be deep seated. I think he played lots of roles. I think he played the hardworking driver, the polite, hardworking driver. There were no complaints. I think he was a model employee, actually. I think he got employee of the month just before he was arrested. Um, he was the devoted son. Um, and you'd think, thank God, Kathleen didn't live to see what happened. Um, devoted son, devoted husband. But then there was the um, macho or would-be macho womanizer to the younger brother. Um, uh, he, he wore lots of hats, didn't he, really? Well, he did, but psychopathy comes tends to come out and be displayed later on. You know, your true self reveals itself. And his true self, he had many faces and many masks, but his true self was how he felt towards women and what he acted upon, that need-driven behaviour. And it did become need-driven behaviour, even by his own admission. And I do believe that that was a truthful admission when he said he needed to do these things and why he became so prevalent, certainly in the, the last 
few months when he was attacking women regularly and when he wasn't yeah. satiated by an attack where someone survived, he would then go out and do it again. And I think that excitement in the media all played into it. Everyone talking about him, but not knowing it was him, which is why he got a kick out of driving his brother's wife in a car and letting them think that they're being protected, where all the while they're actually sat in the car with the person who is doing the killing. And that would have been a great joke to pierce. I think he did get a kick out of that. I think he said that, actually. But interestingly, there's also this weak, cowardly side to him, because when he was arrested, he only attempted sex with one of his victims. And when he was arrested, he wanted to try and keep that away from Sonia. And actually... I think that is one of the things Sonia asked. She did ask him, but we do know that he masturbated at the scene multiple times. The victim's account said that he masturbated and semen was found. And we also know that when he was arrested, he was wearing a jumper like underwear so that his genitals were revealed. So mm. it's a power and control crime either way, a mission kill on women, but there was a sexual component to it. He did... He was sexually aroused through the violence. I was interviewing then Detective Inspector Des O'Boyle, who was in the room when Sonia was brought in. He'd confessed uh, by this time, he'd made detailed statements. Sonia was sat down and more or less said, what's, what's all this, Peter? And he said, well, it's... It's, you know, I've got to use the moniker now. I've got to say, because I'm quoting him. He said, well, you know all this stuff? She said, yes. He said, well, it's me. It's me. And her reply was, oh, Peter, how could you? Even a sparrow has a right to life. That's a very peculiar reply from someone. But, you know, not again... Not forsaking, we know that Sonia did suffer from mental health issues. She was a diagnosed schizophrenic, uh, I recall, wasn't she? Yeah. And suffered. Yeah. She'd, have, she'd have a spell in hospital as well, yeah. But it yeah. certainly is a very strange yeah. response to knowing that your husband, who you trust and love, is the man responsible for all, all the murders that are happening and putting the, the fear of God into women. And the fact he used her as an alibi well, so many times as well. I think one of the most interesting insights that I revealed in one of my pieces, after he'd been at the magistrates to be remanded in custody, they uh, he needed, well, first of all, as he was taken um, into court, he was in the police van with Des O'Boyle. And he's, he was frightened because there was a baying mob outside. So this man who was killed and mutilated was frightened by the baying mob. And he said, what if they have a gun? And Deso Boyle with black humour said, well, I hope they know which one's the killer and which one isn't, more or less. Um, and then after he was remanded, they had to go back to the marital home so he could get clothes and things like that to obviously take with him to jail. And um, so this was January now. It was freezing that month. It was snowy, everything. 
I went into the house. Um, bear in mind, it was just after Christmas, and Sonia insisted that Peter, this is after appearing in court, the most infamous criminal of, uh, of the century by then, uh, that Peter sit down and have a piece of Christmas cake and a glass of milk. So he sat at the dining table, and Des O'Boyle's left hand, I think, was handcuffed to Peter Sutcliffe's right. And every time Peter Sutcliffe lifted a glass of milk, Des O'Boyle's hand went up as well, obviously. But it's almost nursery food, isn't it? You know, the cake and milk. They got their things, and then he went off to be remanded in custody. What was his reaction, Sharon, just when, when he, Sonia said to have a piece of Christmas cake and milk? Did he react to that? Well, I, oh yeah, Peter Sutcliffe rolled his eyes to the detectives. Rolled his eyes. Interesting that, isn't it? It is, because on the surface it looks like one thing, but I do wonder just how much of uh, people buy into P.S. narrative, i.e. Sonia was the reason they were late to the to his father's house and it was Sonia who didn't want the heating on. I mean, that's his account. We don't know any differently that that is truthful and the fact he rolls his eyes that kind of disdain and contempt that probably is his normal reaction and we miss who really controls a relationship the person who desires intimacy the least is the person who controls the relationship and we miss those things i i, I mean obviously i've spoke to a few of the Sutcliffe men and none of them were particularly complimentary about sonia but then in later life, John Sutcliffe did say um, he seemed to warm to Sonia, for, I think, for standing by Peter. Um, and he, he, he seemed a bit kinder towards her. And I think when the detectives showed Sonia one of the knives that was part of Peter Sutcliffe's uh, killing kit, he said, oh, yeah, that's part of my kitchen set. It was a wedding present. Yeah, I mean, I think Sonia represented the normal family ideal life and it was under the cover of that that he was enabled to commit these murders. And I mean that in the sense that she was his alibi each time. So people don't think that a family man would do this sort of thing. And I think her question to him when he did disclose that it was him who had been attacking women, she also asked him if she if he had had sex with them. and. That second question is quite instructive because it's about, you know, what intimacy is about. She wanted, although she said something that's quite uh, banal and inane and sounds very, very strange of about a sparrow having a right to live. Her next question was about, was it intimate? And again, it shows someone's not quite understanding the full situation. And I would imagine that her mental health, the schizophrenia, plays in there somewhere, given that we know that she had a breakdown. Yeah. You know, the background context is important to me. And it's, I, I mean, yeah, and absolutely. Because, I mean, they were a very quiet, conservative with a small C, respectable family. Her, her sister, I think the sister was a classical pianist, the mother and father, I think Eastern European, made the home in, in Bradford. Very quiet, respectable, hardworking. And I think to take in that the man she thought was this devoted husband, and, you know, they were trying for a family. She'd had miscarriages. I mean, John Sutcliffe said, said to me, it's a pity they never had kids because 
Peter would have been a marvellous father and my jaw dropped at that one. But, and, um, and I just think, you know, the, she must have been in shock, in fairness, and it must have been a shock that lasted for months. Yeah. And we know in 1972, she had a breakdown and she returned to Yorkshire and he was looking after her. Um, so there's a lot more to, to yeah. that relationship, I would imagine. And just because someone doesn't behave in a certain way, i.e. they don't appear as a maternal female, a lot of men don't like women who are not maternal and don't pander to their every will and desire and want. Um, you know, we, we see that all the time about murders. So across the 1970s and, and 80s, Sharon, the, the murder rate, and I'm talking really first of all about stranger attacks on lone women outside the home, bar PS cases. Were the police, you've been a crime reporter for a long time, but were the police dealing with a lot of cases, can you recall, at that time that were non-stranger uh, attacks on lone well, females? I wasn't a, a journalist then, but I mean, I do, obviously I was alive and I remember how, you know, in your family it would be, if you knew that a woman was being hit by a husband, it was like pushed up behind closed doors. It was it never reported to the police, never. And uh, I think there was almost an attitude by probably the police, if they were called on the odd occasion, well behave, keep in line, do what he says sort of thing. And so I think stranger murders are very rare. I mean, they were pretty rare, really. You know, it's he changed the landscape, definitely. Yeah, I mean, from my career and running the Homicide Prevention Unit at New Scotland Yard, I know how rare stranger attacks on lone females are, i.e., and I've worked on a series where women were being hit over the back of the head in, in London um, and killed. And it's a it's a rare rare type of offence, and it's a rare even rarer type of offender. So it's instructive to me at this time when you've got women reporting being hit over the back of the head that they're not being taken seriously because those cases to me would stand out. And I would imagine back in the day they still should have stood out because they're not dealing with hundreds of those different types of cases, and they're not dealing with a huge amount of crime back then either. So I, I think that culture... But it was about knowing your place, once in society then, knowing your place and you had to know your place. And, you know, it's those... Uh, that was the time you didn't question doctors, teachers, police, priests. Uh, you, authority was authority, wasn't it? And that was seen in the police force during this investigation. Perfect example. Sutcliffe got lucky. That's what he did. He got lucky. Very. Well, I'd say it's more than luck. It was a culture that enabled, it was an ecosystem that allowed. And I think he couldn't yeah. believe yeah. either. He actually said that at trial. They had every piece of information there and yet each interview they just let him go. And he would say that he had an alibi with his wife. And even with that, police officers were told that they wouldn't and shouldn't accept alibis from a family member. But they seem to just throw the rule book, throw out common sense with this case and other yeah. other attitudes and things prevailed. So um, say the name of your book as well, Sharon, or anything that li uh, my listeners can yeah. read or well, find. Can you imagine, though, this scrawny little lorry driver from this small Yorkshire town, potentially belittled by his father, 
smaller than his burly, rumbustious brothers. Um, essentially had some sort of complex about that and everything. But for five years, he drove about with this respectable life, but hid this secret. He must have thought he was Superman. He really must have thought. I imagine he, he did. And even the fact he was actually people put headlights on him and various people appeared when he was attacking some of the women and he just lay there with the women and he still wasn't caught, which again, you know, unfortunately it then plays into that. I'm invincible. I'm untouchable. I'm above the law, but it was ultimately his recklessness that uh, got him caught. So it should have been far earlier on yeah. though, shouldn't it? It was the expense of yeah. many other women's lives, which is unforgivable. Absolutely. Matt, um, in the um, 1994 I wrote a book called Working Girls and Their Men, it's not a title I particularly like, it was chosen by male publishers, I will say, but it's, I um, look at the prostitution in the UK, it's, I think it's the last major investigation into the all the different aspects of the business. So I interviewed girls who stood on the street corners. I interviewed them all who were stood on the street corners. In saunas, with unofficial brothels, and even in a Mayfair Muse house, where, you, as they call them, the high-class hooker. And she was a beautiful girl. I interviewed Hunters, uh, detectives, um, the judiciary, um, and uh, it's uh, it was fascinating. And I think it wasn't what the girls that shocked me; it was the punters. And you know, we all carry, I suppose, stereotypes and what have you. But these punters were everything from young guys through to respectable, so-called businessmen, family men. We've seen them in the news and we're high profile men being caught out, so to speak. So absolutely. So and I'll put a link in the show notes as well to your articles so that people can read them. So thank you so much, Sharon. This has been really helpful for me as background, piecing together key aspects to what went on at the time in Yorkshire, but also the police culture and your interview with John Sutcliffe, which is really revealing. So I just want to thank you for spending this time with me. I really appreciate it. No, thank you, Laura. It's been fascinating to reflect on it all. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Sharon. Hey there. So I'm jumping back in here. What did you think about what Sharon had to say? There were so many interesting moments, weren't there? Let me know what jumped out at you on social media and what you've learned. Did you note how John Sutcliffe talked about and treated women? The fact that he was a womanizer cheating on Kathleen, his misogyny, his abuse of Kathleen and the children, his coercive control and the double standards. Well, all of that would have had a significant impact on the children, including P.S., who may have been more of a target than the others. And I'm going to get into that in a future episode about P.S., as well as other potential offences that he may have committed. So I hope you'll join me back in the intelligence cell for episode 14 of Crime Analyst and the Forgotten Victims. Until then, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instincts.
And here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. The first is a huge thank you to all of you, my lovely listeners and crime analysts, for tuning in every week. The second is an ask. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review on whichever platform you listen to me on. It really helps others find me and helps with the ratings. So thank you, thank you. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Tim Hansen at Half Ogre Studios. Cover art and graphics by Chris Raybottom at Syndicate. And music by Kilrude. <laughs>